We have uh, this weekend being set aside as Memorial Day weekend, and uh, it is a weekend that is not just a sacred weekend, a secular weekend as well, that uh, it is a time where our nation pauses on our calendar and remembers those who have died in service of their nation. And there are times where we're called to focus on remembering, and this is one of those days, or this weekend anyways, And I know often Memorial Day weekend is one of those sort of traditional weekends that launches us into summer. Families get together often. There's barbecues. I know I drove through town this morning and the fire department was cooking their barbecued chicken or their chicken, grilled chicken. And that downtown, I don't know how you'd all be hungry if you lived downtown Madawaska because uh, that smoke just permeates. I don't know how burnt chickens and smell so good, but it just does. But we, we do those things. You know, we gather and we have often those kind of celebrations. And um, some of us who were younger, when we were younger, we would sometimes go swimming on Memorial Day. That's nuts now. I wouldn't even go near it. But anyways, uh, we would do things like that. But beyond that, uh, the things that stick with me, especially as I grew up here in Maine and in our communities, is that there were times where we would gather for remembrance of those who sacrificed, the ultimate sacrifice, who aren't with us today, those who laid down their lives in the service of their country. And that was a sobering thing. In the midst of our gatherings and our fun times associated with Memorial Day, I am also reminded that it is a very hard day and a hard weekend to uh, commemorate, and especially for those who are living who have lost loved ones in, uh, in their lifetime. And they remember those that aren't with us. And I wanted to pause today because God is a God who he calls us to remember. And I think it's just simply because we are quick to forget. (laughs) I am anyways. Uh, You can tell me something and then the next day sometimes I've forgotten it. But there are certain important things like remembering not only those who have sacrificed so much for us, but remembering what God has done. And this is one of those times where we want to pause and remember. Semper momento means always remember. And it is something that we want to always remember. We want to remember what God has done and what God has given us and be thankful for that this weekend. Well, there are a number of times in Scripture where we see God putting something or calling man to gather or put something in front of them that calls him and, and those around him to follow who he is and remember what he has done for them. One of the first, I think, really the first clear memorial that was ever given in Scripture uh, is something that, well, we might take for granted now. I hope you don't, but it's found in Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, we find here where uh, Noah has... Uh, really come through the great flood we know the story of the flood and the flood came as a result of God's judgment upon the earth because sin had permeated the earth and violence in particular had permeated the earth we still live in a very violent world and we will so long as sin reigns in the hearts of people that's the way that is but as people repent and turn to God that's where true peace comes from first peace with God through Jesus Christ our Savior and then secondly peace with one another if people embrace that peace right and we find here God established a covenant sign with Noah and all of Noah's descendants which by the way you're one of those I'm one of those descendants all right we come from that family 
And he says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Let's open in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful for your memorial markers that you've placed in this world. Some are visible, some being invisible, some we call to remembrance, O Lord, and we look by faith. We even pray, even this weekend, Lord, people would pause and consider the seriousness of their own life. And the fact of the the sacrifice that has gone on to secure our freedoms. And as well, Lord, they would pause to remember also Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has given us a way in this life to have eternal life with him. And Lord, we just pray to that end, even today, that many would come to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, open up your word to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The first memorial that we see here in scripture is the rainbow. Uh, And I'm not going to comment too much on all the details of this passage in other than this to say that the rainbow is a sign that God set in the sky for us to remember that he will never again judge the earth by water anyways, not in a mass flood judgment. The next judgment that shall come will be actually one of fire and the Bible talks about that. But it, it's interesting that the rainbow often it symbolizes peace, and that has been something. Uh, and it also symbolizes, it goes right back to Genesis, where God established a covenant with Noah, and then he confirmed it with the bow in the sky. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that it's a reminder of that. I never knew that growing up. I, I remember, you know, just like you, we'd see a rainbow, and maybe just at the right time, of course, you know, it has to happen right when the light is refracting at the right you know angle of the sun all that stuff to be able to see that and I, I remember uh, where I grew up in Quimby uh, in the that looked over St. Freud Lake often those thunderstorms and rain and all that stuff would come through in the afternoons and I would see the rainbow out there and it was always something that brought joy to our hearts when we had a chance to see a rainbow my wife is like that to this day if she sees a rainbow she's outside she's embarrassing me as she's out on the lawn excited and cars are driving by but she gets really really excited about rainbows and stuff but they're a reminder that it's God's covenant. I never knew that. The first time I ever found that out is right after I became a Christian. Just a few weeks after I became a Christian, I was on a river trip with Gary Gardner. We went down uh, the Allagash, and we were coming down a section of water, and there was a rainstorm, and he, there was a rainbow that appeared in the sky. And he said, Jack, do you know what that means? And I said, well, yeah, and I started to explain scientifically how light refracts and, you know, the, the colors of the rainbow show. And, and he says, no, 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 no. And he explained the rainbow from Genesis chapter 9. This is the first time I ever knew that. And now, ever since then, I have been reminded every time I see a rainbow that God is a God who wants to give us peace with him. And that peace comes through Jesus Christ. He has been judged for us at the cross 
His, he took my sin and your sin, and he wants you to be saved. He wants you to turn to him in faith, turn from your sin, and turn to him as Savior. And the rainbow reminds us of that. Well, there are other reminders in Scripture. Uh, the next one, there's more than just the ones I have here. But for sake of time, unless you want to be here for two or three days, uh, we won't go through all those texts. But another big one was found in the book of Exodus, the very next book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 12, we find the institution of the Passover and the celebration of Passover. And this is what the Bible says in Exodus 12. It says, And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Again, a memorial found in Scripture. This time, it's a Passover. And the Passover, again, you remember the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, they were uh, in Egypt. They'd been there for about 400 years at this point. And they had gone from uh, favored when they first got there. Remember we the story of Joseph, that's in the book of Genesis, and he was a deliverer of his own people and also of the Egyptians. But eventually there arose a, a king in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. And the Jewish people who were there, the Israelites, ended up becoming slaves. And it wasn't overnight necessarily they became a slave. It was gradual as their freedoms were sort of taken one after another after another, and soon they found themselves as those that were enslaved in a foreign land. And so they cried out to God, and God raised up Moses, a deliverer. And you know the story of the Exodus says Moses would go to Pharaoh, and God said, I will plague Pharaoh or the land of Egypt. And there were numerous plagues that took place, and each time Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. I find it interesting that that is the way a lot of times people react to, to the Lord and his message they may even see the, the judgment of God upon them, and they still harden their hearts to him. And that's exactly what was taking place. And, and eventually, there was a final plague, and that plague was the Passover plague, where the angel of death would come on a given night, and he would go across the land, and every firstborn of every animal and every person would die. That was the judgment of God except those who would obey God and they would take a lamb and they would slay that lamb and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would put that on the doorposts and on the lintel of their door. And the, as we read here, when the Lord passed over and saw the blood, he would, he would, uh, when he passed over, he would pass over that house and all that were in that household. They were protected under the blood of a lamb. And that was a picture, really a greater picture, of how God was going to deliver not only Israel, but the whole world through the blood of a lamb, God's lamb, God the Son, Jesus, when he 
someday would go to a cross and there his blood would be shed. And if you're under his blood, that's a, under the, by faith, under his blood, your sins are washed away, your sins are covered, and God says, I'll remember them no more. And according to Romans chapter 5, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. The Passover, which even to this day, Jews practice and they commemorate every year. And in many ways, most, most of them and you know, those that are believing Jews who've become Christians, but they don't see the greater picture that a Savior has come. And that we know from the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of lambs as well could never take away sin. It was an action of faith that they demonstrated when they obeyed God in doing that. And it was their faith that saved them. But it was their faith in God's plan really, that saved him. And that's the same today. We look back. We look back at the cross. We look back at what took place there. And by faith, we trust the Lord Jesus. And he is our sin bearer. He's the one that when judgment comes, it will pass over you if you are under the blood. Very important. But it was a remembrance. And the Jews were called to remember that and to continue to remember that for generation after generation after generation. They're due to do that. So that they understand that God is a God who delivers. And he does it through a mighty hand. Well, later on as they came out of Egypt and eventually Pharaoh let them go. And we know that and the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And how the sea uh, swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. And the army of the Egyptians. And it was destroyed. The greatest army on earth at the time. And it was destroyed by God's judgment. The Israelites came over on dry ground. And they wander around for 40 years in a wilderness. A barren place. And it was there that during that time that God provided for them. It was there that God commanded them and gave them the law. The Mosaic law. The Ten Commandments and the other commandments that go with that. And it was God who taught them during that time. Really directly through Moses and through Aaron and through others there. But, you know, even in that one generation, people had forgotten or were about to forget about God and his great deliverance. And he, was, he calls them back to remembrance. In Deuteronomy, by the way, the word Deuteronomy means to remember, all right? It, it carries with it a rehearsing of what has already been said. And you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a recap, sort of, of everything God has done. It's a fantastic book, one of the books of Moses. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is what it says. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, for the Jews, they were to keep the Sabbath day, that seventh day of the week, and it was a, first and foremost a remembrance of God's rest at creation. Remember, six days he creates all things. On the seventh day he rests. And that was what Shabbat means, Sabbath. It means rest. is isn't that God had to rest. God does not need to rest, nor does he ever tire. But it was a, a, a point where God ceased from his work because it was a finished work. Christians celebrate the resurrection day, which is the first day of the week. And it celebrates also... First of all, a great accomplishment of of our Lord Jesus, who not only did he die and die on the cross, but he rose again the third day, and that's the resurrection day. And so we celebrate that, 
but it, we also often call it the Christian Sabbath or a Sabbath day, and I certainly understand that, but the two days are distinctly different in Scripture. But I would say it this way, that God told the Jews, the Israelites, to remember the Sabbath, and they were to do that every week, every time Shabbat came around, and then they still do this, uh, on that Saturday, actually Friday night as the sun goes down, that's exactly when Sabbath starts, and it doesn't end until the sun set the next day, some 24 hours, and they are to remember the God of creation. And they're also to really to remember that they were at one time slaves in the land of Egypt. And so every week they're commanded to remember that over and over and over again throughout their generations. But the Sabbath points not to man, but points to God. Sometimes we do religious activity and it really just points to man, doesn't it? But the activity that God wanted them to be involved in was a time of remembrance to remember that at one time they were slaves and they would have remained slaves in bondage except the Lord with his powerful outstretched arm delivered them and brought them out. And so Deuteronomy 5.15 is a good reminder for us as well, a call to remembrance. And it's a reminder to all of us that you too were a slave. If you're a Christian, you've been saved and delivered from your sin. You need to look back sometimes and remember that you were a slave to sin. You were in the spiritual land of Egypt. And there you would have remained in bondage had God not done something and delivered you with his outstretched arm. And the cross reminds us that his outstretched arms save us, don't they? He died with his hands spread apart, not by his uh, it was by man's will that put him there, although God's will is evolved as well because he willingly went to the cross, but it was there he allowed his creation to stretch his arms out, to strap those arms to the cross and then nail them. And there he would die, suspended between heaven and earth for you and me. Dying, sinner, right? I should have been on that cross. The one who is perfect, dying for me, dying for you. Deuteronomy 5.15 reminds us of that and reminds us to keep those things in remembrance and they ought always to be before us. We see other times of remembrance. These were more solid in Joshua chapter 4. We have memorial stones. Now, if you've ever walked through a cemetery, uh, uh, most cemeteries anyways uh, have stones of remembrance, right? It's often the, the inscribed names of a loved one and the dates of birth and dates of death or a, a particular saying about them or something or at least just a, a monument, a marker of some sort. And that goes back to ancient times. But God wants us to remember who he is also. And you find here in the account of Joshua, Joshua chapter 3 is the great mighty deliverance of after those 40 years in the wilderness um, and Moses passes off the scene, another leader is raised up. His name is Joshua. And Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan. And they cross the Jordan River. At the time, it was in the spring harvest. And the Jordan River was overflowing its banks. And it would have been quite wide at that point. And it was an impossible situation. They would not have been able to cross the Jordan River except God would do a miracle. And we read that in Joshua chapter 3, how God cut off the waters of the Jordan so that the people could cross over on dry ground. Well, there was an interesting thing that took place. As they were crossing over, God told them 
I want you to take a man out of every tribe of Israel. There were 12 sons of Israel, right? 12 tribes. And you, he wanted to take 12 people out of those tribes. And he wanted them to each pick up a rock, actually two rocks. And they were these stones. They were going to bring those from the riverbed over across. Some were actually going to brought. One was going to stay in the riverbed, a heap of stones. And there was another heap of stones that would be on the other side of the river in Canaan. That's where we pick it up here. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe. And command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. I love that account. It really shows that God wanted the people of Israel to remember what he had done and who they were as well. And he uses stones. Stones are much more uh, lasting than than everything else right in this world everything else that's organic matter eventually goes back down to the dust of the earth doesn't it including people and their bodies however stones last for generations and generations and that was exactly what was to take place they were to go and bring these stones from the bottom of the jordan river now think about that how do you get stones out of the bottom of a river Well, you'd either have to, in that day, they didn't have scuba gear. They couldn't dive down in the water and get them. They they wouldn't even been able to do that at that time of year. The Jordan, which the name Jordan means descender, it rapidly descends from uh, high in the Lebanese mountains down to the lowest part of the earth, which is the Dead Sea, in a space of about 90 miles. And it is when it is filled with water, it is a fast-moving, torrential river of water. And... God rolled back the water, enough for them to go across on dry ground. And it was then, as Joshua tells them, they were to take up stones and put them on their shoulders and bring them across. And there they were going to put a heap of stones. And the reason was this, that when your children come along and ask about these stones, what does this mean? You can tell them that God delivered Israel. And again, God wants us to remind each other, including the next generation, about his faithfulness, about his goodness, about his deliverance. And these were a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And what that meant simply is it reminded them of the Lord God and the covenant that he had made in that. Oh, be thankful for that, that God is able to do that. Well, that's another memorial maybe more lasting 
But there are other memorials also, uh, many others in Scripture, but one that stands out is found in the book of Esther. And in Esther, Esther is a story, remember years later when the children of Israel were in captivity and brought out of in exile in Babylon. And uh, in that time, God was still with them. Although in the book of Esther, you won't see God's name anywhere. It's one of those books where the Lord's name doesn't appear. Some have said, well, maybe it shouldn't be in the Bible if the name of God isn't there. But the book of Esther shows us the sovereign hand of God. And you know what? The world around us doesn't recognize the sovereign hand of God. Most people don't. But he's still active and he's still working and he's still working these details out. And he does it even with people who won't acknowledge him. And he, they are still part of his sovereign will and his plan. We find that with Esther and the story of Esther. And you know, there came a time when an evil man named Haman plotted against the Jews who were in exile. And he had them brought to a place where, well, he was going to have them all executed. Those that would not bow to the image of a king. And he was going to have them. And God turned the tables on Haman. And the very gallows that were made to hang the Jews were ended up, he was hanged on them. (laughs) And the story of Esther, and of course, Esther uh, really pivots on this idea that she, who was the queen, all right, she was Jewish. They didn't know she was Jewish, but she marries the king. And um, she is used to deliver her own people. And it shows where God put her in the very right place at the very right time so that she could be a deliverer. And God does that. Throughout human history, we we don't even know a, a fraction of what God is doing. But we see where God puts people, instruments of his, at the very right moment of the very right time of their their, their existence so that they're there and something will come out of that. Even in tragedies that takes place and in good things He works all those things together for his good. Esther is the story of that. But after all that, they instituted a feast called the Feast of Purim or the Feast of Lots. And um, that is still practiced to this day. And it is actually in Israel very similar to our Memorial Day in the sense that it is uh, uh, more of a secular holiday. I guess that two words don't really match. I guess they're oxymorons there, holy day or holy day and secular. But, but that's kind of the way it falls. It's not in the official Jewish religious feast, but it's part of the feast of their nation. And it is a remembrance of what God did when the Jews were exiled and Esther was used to deliver her people. And God did the deliverance there. And then we pick that up in Esther chapter 9, verse 26. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions and according to to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation every family every province and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants then Queen Esther 
the daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews and to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. I love that. The Jews instituted two days a year called Purim and they were to gather and remember how God delivered them and delivered their nation. Actually saved them from death. They were right on the brink of extinction if that law had been enforced and Haman had had his way, he would have had every single one of them killed. He didn't know about Esther. He didn't know she was a Jew. He didn't know that she would violate even the customs and laws of the day and would approach her husband, the king, and request of him something that if, if he determined, because he, he, she just came in and uninvited, he could have had her killed for that. That was what the law demanded. And yet he listened to her. And God delivered a great people because of that praise God for those throughout the years who have been deliverers of the oppressed and I mean that because you walk through the cemeteries and you walk through and you see the graves of military vets and others and those that sacrifice so much and I'm mindful of those that also sacrificed in that their sons and their daughters went forth to war or service and some that had husbands and uh, you know die on the battlefield and they sacrificed sometimes their whole life after that for those things people put themselves at great risk esther is an example of someone historically that put herself at great risk she didn't have to do that she was in a position of honor a position of wealth she had everything at her disposal as queen and yet she sided with her people and with god there are such people like that. My daughter and I were listening to Adventures in Odyssey. Anybody? Yeah, I know some of the parents are, yeah, Adventures in Odyssey. Um, they have some special, we, we actually, I shouldn't say this, Lydia's 15, but she still listens to those, okay? And she gets my, her dad in to listen to those as well. And this week, we listened to the story of Irina Sendler. Irina Sendler. Anybody ever heard of Irina Sendler? No, I didn't think so. She's sort of a modern-day Esther. She was a Jewish woman. I mean, excuse me, a, a, a Polish woman living in the time of World War II, the occupation of Poland. And she was a social worker with the Polish government working under the Nazis, because the Nazis had come in and overtaken the country and had rounded up the Jews and put them into a ghetto in Warsaw, known as the Warsaw Ghetto. And the Jews literally were starving to death there. And those that were getting out were going to places like Treblinka, which was a death camp. They would be literally promised, if you sign up to go to Treblinka, we'll give you food. You'll just have to work a little bit. But there was no intention of doing that. People and their entire families were getting on trains and they were going to Treblinka. And there they were being gassed and killed in Hitler's final solution. 
It looked bad for the Jews. Six million of them died during that, those years. It looked really hard. But a young lady named Irina Sendler decided that she would do something about that. And she felt it was imperative that she help rescue children. She would go into the ghetto and there she would smuggle children out. Can you imagine being a parent realizing that the only hope for my child is to give them away and just give them away? That's what they had to do. They had to come to that. It was very hard. And she smuggled them out. Initially, they used a back gate that the guards weren't there and they were able to get in and out with Jewish children and she would pretend they were her own children and walk out. And the guards that did see them never caught on that she had a different child every time they met her. She smuggled babies out in toolboxes. She smuggled a child out once in the back of a wagon that was loaded with bricks and had built a little, little uh, va- you know, empty space among the bricks and they, they had put a child in there and then put the bricks all around that child. She put them in knapsacks. She put them different ways, hundreds of different ways, smuggling them out through the sewer systems. You can imagine doing that. She smuggled out 2,500 children at the peril of her life. Actually, she was arrested, and she spent about four months in jail, and the Nazis signed her execution papers. And as she was going to be executed, they brought her out of the city to shoot her. And one of the guards says, I'll take care of this one. Unbeknownst to the others, he had been paid off to spare her life. He went into the woods. He fired a shot in the air, and he said, get out of here. And she was spared. Over 2,500 Jewish children owed their lives and their families that came out of them to a woman named Irina Sindler and those like her, so many like her, that did thousands of more like that. They're also people we remember. We remember they put their life at peril. And it's proper to remember people like that. There were other interesting in scripture women who were used in remembrance. One of the most, I think... I think famous ones is a woman here. She remains unnamed in Matthew's gospel, much sort of like uh, Esther in the sense that, um, but we know she's Mary, and that's from John's gospel, the detail there. But in Matthew 26, 6 6 to 13, we read this. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Isn't that interesting how sometimes people come to something that's very costly, and they see it spent, and they say, what a waste. You know, the people that walk through cemeteries, sometimes they'll see a grave of a young person that was killed in in combat, or somebody who just died in the service of something else maybe a service in a cause they didn't want they didn't believe in or the i'm saying the person that walking through the cemetery didn't believe in and they say what a waste it's never a waste when someone lays down their lives for their friends their nation it is not a waste and god will not waste a life given to him this woman comes and she takes a very costly a flask of this alabaster flask and filled with myrrh most likely and he she pours out this ointment 
this oil, this very expensive. It would have been about a year's wages, the cost of this, and pours it out on the Lord. And look what it says here. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. See, the disciples, they're the ones that should know better. They said, well, this is a waste. This this money could be used so much better elsewhere. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I love that. A memorial to her. But it's really a memorial to what God was going to do. That's an interesting way to put it. She saw ahead by faith what others failed to see. Even those closest to the Lord failed to see. That he was about to go and he was going to die. He was going to be poured out for us. And you know it's interesting because when they took Jesus down off the cross, his body came off the cross, that just before Sabbath fell on that Friday, they hastily took it to a tomb and buried it. And there was no time to take that fragrant oil that was often put into the linen uh, that was wrapped around the bodies and it was sort of a mummification process, which took a while. And they didn't have time to do that. It had to hastily be done because if you touched a dead body on the Sabbath day, the law said you were unclean. So early Sunday morning on the third day, just before dawn, they arise and these women go to the tomb of Jesus and they had brought spices with them and they were going to uh, obviously prepare the body more. But when they get there, what happens? <laughs> they find the tomb is open. The stone has been rolled away. They, they find an angel has said, why do you seek the living among the dead, right? And they go in there and the body of Jesus is not there. And the point is this. This woman was the only one to anoint Jesus over his burial. And she anointed a living Jesus. You'll never find a dead Jesus, by the way. He's alive. And he wants you to give him glory and to, be rem- and to remember what he's done for you and for me. That's the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. That's the gospel. And if you'll believe that, for whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this, this was done as a memorial to her. And then another one that we celebrate monthly here at the church, but it doesn't necessarily have to be monthly, it could be daily. It could be something as often as you do it, Jesus says. But in Luke 22, verse 19, when he sat with his disciples and he broke bread, he did that at that point, symbolic of what is going to take place in the hours to come when his body would be broken and as that cup was passed around it was a reminder that his blood would be shed we come to the book of first corinthians and paul explains that this is done in remembrance of him so now as an ordinance a commandment that was given to the church to continue we do that to remember the lord's death until he comes that's what first corinthians 
says in that. But do this. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lots of different things that God calls us to remember. All kinds of different ones. And by the way, I challenge you, in your own personal devotion time, I hope you don't just get fed here on Sunday morning, because if you do, you, I, I, I think you'll get fed, but you might starve if you're not eating in between, right? Get into the Bible. Look at those things. And you know what? As you go through the Bible, look for all the times God calls us to remember and to remember him. There's a lot more than what I've mentioned here. Well, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to um, end with just talking about a little bit about something that went on this week. Earlier this week, we, the, the, our family, our immediate family, went to a cemetery. Actually, a couple of different cemeteries. One we ended up in is in Presque Isle. And if you've ever gone there along Route 1, as you're headed out of Presque Isle, there's that uh, cemetery that sits there. And I often catches my attention because there's graves of veterans right down near the road. And they're, this time of year, those flags that are all lined up with those graves. And I always see that. Every time I go by there, I see that. And I've always said I wanted to stop and see that cemetery someday. And I never had until this week. And it's a picture of my wife walking in the cemetery with our five-year-old grandson, Levi. And they're walking through the cemetery. And you know, my little grandson came up to me and my wife says, ask Grampy, ask Grampy that question you had. And so they had been walking through there and they had seen a freshly dug grave and no, no body in it yet. It was just open. They were getting ready to have somebody interred there. And my little five-year-old grandson had never understood that or seen that or understood why we bury people. And he had all kinds of questions. You know, you can be a five-year-old and all of a sudden be confronted with death in a way that you've never been confronted before. And I tried to explain best I could um, why we bury bodies and, and those kind of things and what it means. And I told him about the hope of a Christian and that we, our bodies someday will be raised up again to be reunited with our soul and our spirit. And we, we, we talked a little bit about that. But the cemetery is a place where you, when you go there, it makes things a little more serious, doesn't it? You walk along and you look and you see the dates of people's birth and their death. And I saw a lot of them that were a lot younger than me. And it reminded me, hey, Jack, your day's coming too. And I know the Lord and I have hope beyond the grave. I can say that. But what about those that don't have hope? What about those that don't know? What about those in my own family, perhaps, that still don't know him? I'm here for a reason and you're here for a reason if you know him. But the cemetery is like that. Memorial Day is like that. It, it remembers the great acts of, of both you know, corporately as a nation, but also as individuals who, who took on the bravery and the courage to do something beyond themselves. <laughs> so many stories. You could go on and on and on with different stories. One of them that came to me this week was on the USS Samuel B. Roberts. Samuel B. Roberts was a destroyer. World War II was commissioned in January of 1944 and it sank at the Battle of Samar in the Pacific on October 25th, 1944. The uh, story of the Samuel B. Roberts is that they were among us, very small contingent of destroyers, small ships, <laughs> that were 
guarding the escort uh, carriers of, there were three uh, aircraft carriers, they were escorts for those carriers, and they were, uh, the, the carriers were involved at that time with support to the army as the army was landing and the marines were landing, and they were in the middle of a battle uh, going on, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And these carriers were very vulnerable. They did not have any aircraft with them, and all the aircraft that were off flying in the air needed a place to land when they came back and all of that. And all of a sudden, at their most vulnerable time, over the horizon came 23 Japanese naval ships. They had heavy cruisers, a heavy cruiser with big guns against a little destroyer like the Samuel Roberts. The captain of the Roberts decided their only thing they could do as it was their duty was to charge towards that, co- that group of 23 Japanese ships. They came under immense fire from the big guns, none of them landing their mark. The captain drove the Roberts straight into him. He got within two and a half miles. He was laying smoke the whole time, trying to cloud the air so they couldn't see the ships beyond. And he went right up, and they were able to get off a torpedo, and they struck one of those, those cruisers, the Japanese cruisers. Meanwhile, they were taking all kinds of uh, uh, flak and, and hits from the smaller guns. The big guns, they had gotten in so close, the big guns of the cruiser couldn't get their guns low enough to hit them. They were still firing over them. They eventually hit, were hit, and the ship began to sink, and within 30 minutes, the abandoned ship order went out. That occurred right after sunup, and the Samuel Roberts uh, sunk somewhere around 9.30 a.m. It was some of the most intensive combat of the U.S. Navy, and it all was really dealing with just a few ships, and the Samuel Roberts being one of them that is to this day honored as uh, their crew, and, and by the way, when they sank, there were 90 uh, that went down with her and about 120 that survived. And it, um, it was a devastating thing for that crew in that. The picture I came across of a painting <laughs> that sort of depicted what they might have been under as they charged into battle. But we honor such men and such bravery who felt that their duty And they looked beyond the immediate circumstances of themselves and they saw greater hope beyond that, even at the peril of their own lives. And they did that. There was a man named Paul Carr. He was on the aft five-inch gun on the Samuel B. Roberts and he was in charge of that gun. They had 325 rounds uh, at that gun station. He fired almost all of them off until there was a breach explosion that, that fatally, mortally wounded him. And he was found holding his intestines in and asking for help to load the final round. We honor such men, such bravery. We are a great nation. And so long as we have great people who are willing to sacrifice like that, we will stay great. That is my prayer for America. That is my prayer for our world. That the word of God would go forth and that people would be brave enough to do that which is bigger than themselves and they would do it for reasons greater than themselves. We honor such people. I'm going to close this morning with a song. 
in a video that my son 